welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clydebilt Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit, COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sager, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. kick off the show, every day we'll be talking to Sally Mulhook, unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone where the climate negotiations take place. Sally Mulhook is a friend of the show and is one of the top scientists from Bangladesh on climate change science. He was recognised as one of the top 20 global influencers on climate change policy in 2019 and we are delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Salim. So, um, as you already know, uh, this is my 26th COP. I'm one of the few people who's been to all uh, 25 previous ones and now to this one. Um, but I, I should uh, clarify that I don't come to these negotiations as a negotiator. I come as an observer. I'm a researcher. I'm a, a professor. I come as an observer. But I, I do have a role in the negotiations in as much as I advise the group of least developed countries. They're a formal caucus group of about 48 uh, poor countries in Asia and Africa, currently chaired by Bhutan. And I advise them on the topic of loss and damage uh, from climate change, which is a very important topic here in, in Glasgow. And I'll be doing that. I actually come early to every COP because there's a whole set of pre-COP meetings that take place in in advance of the COPs. I've been in Glasgow already for a number of days, meeting with the different delegates and figuring out what we need to do and planning our, our moves uh, as the COP opens. It will open with uh, very high level uh, speeches by heads of government flying into Glasgow for a day. Uh, they will have a photo op with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and then they'll fly away. Uh, um, many people, particularly the global media, think that is the COP. It isn't. That's just a photo op that's going to take place, in fact, before the COP even starts. Once they've flown away, then the negotiations will start and there'll be two weeks of negotiations. The first week is at a technical level. Uh, we review everything that's happened so far and what needs to happen. And then the second week is a political level when ministers come and there is some negotiations agreeing on what to do next. 
Um, and then hopefully at the end of the two weeks, which is on the 12th of November, uh, we will hear the result of the COP. And we will then be able to judge whether it was a good COP or not a good COP. Uh, so the leaders coming in, giving speeches, flying away is not the COP. That's just kicking off the COP. It's like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. You know, uh, the media is going to cover the opening ceremony and then forget about the actual games. Uh, but people are interested in the games themselves and not the opening ceremony. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I have so many questions that are sprouting out my mind from just this. So will the high level leaders come back to present the final no. final? No. So they are they're not actually part of the negotiations. They're sending no. their ministers. That's right. Yes. So they so just to clarify what a COP is. And again, this is a misperception of what a COP is. A COP is a conference of parties of countries that are signed up to the UN Framework Convention. They meet once a year, every year in November or December, hosted by a country from a different continent. So they move around the world. Uh, and each year, the host country hosts a meeting of two weeks of governments from all the countries. That's a routine annual meeting. This is the 26th such routine annual meeting. But some COPs are more important than other COPs, and some host governments try to make their COPs more important than mm -hmm. other COPs. And Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK has tried to make COP26 a very important COP. And he's done that by inviting world leaders from around the world to come uh, to the opening. In fact, not even the opening. They're coming a day before the COP, day before the opening. They're just coming for a photo op with him. Um, and he wants to set the scene with them. It's a good thing. I'm not against it. Uh, but we must not misunderstand that it is not a summit meeting. Mm -hmm. He's just invited them for a photo op and they might make a speech. They are here to set things rolling. They are not here to negotiate. They are not going to be negotiating with each other. This is not a G20 or a G7 meeting where they do actually leaders talk to each other and try to negotiate. They're not going to do that here. They're just going to come to Glasgow, make a speech, have a group photograph, fly home. And so the, the summit element, the leaders coming to Glasgow element is more show than substance. Um, and a lot of the media have hyped up the fact that President Xi of China is not coming, President Putin of Russia is not coming, so it must be a failure. It doesn't matter whether they come or not. The Chinese government is already here. The Russian government is already here. They're going to be here for the whole two weeks till the very end. They will negotiate. The COP goes on whether their leader flies to Glasgow or doesn't fly to Glasgow. That is immaterial to the COP. And so uh, one has to be very careful about uh, understanding what a COP is and what it isn't. Uh, it is many things, uh, but the leader summit isn't the COP. It's just a, a PR. It's good that they come, good that they make speeches, good that they say they're going to do things, uh, but that is not the COP. So it's like it's it's almost they're um, endorsing COP and saying we do want something good to come of it. We are here. We 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 understand it's a big deal, and then Precisely. we it and we pass it Precisely. over to Precisely. Yeah, and this this by the way is a a lesson learned the hard way, because many years ago in Copenhagen we had another big COP like this, uh, and the leaders came at the end, and at the end when they came we had not negotiated. We hadn't agreed on anything. And so President Obama had to actually literally negotiate with 
the Chinese president and the premier of India on language. Leaders should never have to do that. That should be done by underlings and leaders come and sign. And he flew out of Copenhagen thinking he had an agreement with the other leaders, which he didn't. Because when it came to the plenary, many countries were not in the small room where he was meeting with a handful of leaders, did not agree to whatever those small group of leaders had agreed to. And Copenhagen became a complete failure because of that. Mm. And the French then in Paris learned that lesson. And what they did, and this is the tradition Boris Johnson is following, they invited world leaders to come to Paris at the beginning. Come, give a rousing speech, tell your negotiators you want this done. They should all get it done the next two weeks and then leave. Don't stay until the negotiations. If you want to come back at the end, once we have a deal, then you're welcome to come back for a photo op at the end. But let the negotiators do the negotiating and let leaders stay out of it. Um, it is often said of the UN uh, negotiations that they're too technical for the politicians and they're too political for the technical people. And mm -hmm. so you need a com combination of both. The technical people need to be allowed to do the technical negotiations and then politicians need to come in and do the final bit of horse trading that enables them to uh, get an agreement. Fabulous, fabulous. Such good explanations. Now, um, so Copenhagen, Copenhagen didn't work. Paris, there are some mm -hmm. quite long-term agreements that we've placed, and now we need more short-term agreements because imminently we need to reduce um, our emissions by, by um, half by 2030. Does, what constitutes a good and a bad COP? So again, um, a, the Paris Agreement is the good COP. We have an agreement, all right? It's the best COP we've ever had. Okay. Um, and every COP since then is about hammering the details of the Paris Agreement to implement it well. In Glasgow, we are going to do exactly that. There is no new Glasgow Agreement being negotiated. It's all about how are we implementing the Paris Agreement and by the way, we're not doing very well. So that, again, will constitute our judgment on whether Glasgow is a good COP or a bad COP. Because right now, going into the COP, before we've even started, the number one agreement was to keep temperature below 1.5 degrees. The recent set of um, country, um, they're called nationally determined contributions on country plans to reduce emissions, when you add them all up, are taking us to 2.7 degrees. We're nowhere near 1.5, all right? Yeah. So unless we can bring that down very quickly to towards 1.5, that's going to be a failure for Glasgow, right? Yeah. That is already setting us up for a very, very big gap that has to be uh, filled. The second one is the $100 billion that was presented, uh, promised by the rich countries back in Paris. They, were, they said, they promised to give $100 billion a year to the developing world to tackle climate change, both mitigation and adaptation by 2020. It's now, you know, almost the 1st of November, 2021. 2020 is gone, the money didn't come. 2021 should have had another 100 billion, money has not come. What have they come to Glasgow with? They have come to Glasgow with, with something. It's called a plan. And the plan says, the check's in the mail, you'll get it in 2023. We're not even coming to Glasgow with the money. Wow. We are coming with a, another promise that we will give it to you in 2023. And that, to me, again, bodes unwell for Glasgow being a successful COP because already they are shifting the goalposts. 
and mm. saying, well, you know, we promised this six years ago. We promised to deliver it in 2020. We didn't. We promised to deliver it in 2021. We didn't. We're not even going to promise to deliver it next year in 2022. We're going to promise to deliver it two years from now in 2023. And you're going to have to live with that. And that, to me, destroys any kind of trust that countries will have coming into Glasgow. And therefore, I get asked a lot whether the atmosphere in Glasgow before COP starts is more like Copenhagen or more like Paris. I'm afraid it's a lot worse than Copenhagen. I hope I'm wrong, but it is. Okay, on that note, we're going we're gonna to say goodbye for today and hopefully tomorrow we're going to get on a positive note. I, I, I'm always positive, but I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to declare small victories as real victories. All right? That's what's going to happen. They will give you a small victory and declare it to be a real victory. Unfortunately, that is no longer sufficient. You know, good, not good enough has to be declared not good enough. co-hosts and extraordinary humans, Corey Choi. And I'm so pleased to present you and introduce you because you've been such a shining force of good and inspiration for, for my life. And yeah, I'm just so glad to have you on, on as our team. So first of all, can you give us a little introduction of yourself? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Sophie. I'm very excited to be here in this audio space. Um, so I am Tori Choi and I am a climate justice organizer and activist from Hong Kong, though I'm based in Bristol, but currently in Glasgow for the COP26. And a lot of my work revolves around a few different things, primarily coalition building within movements. I really think it's important for different justice movements to connect um, because we're so much stronger when we work together. And also making sure that those of us who reside in the global north who have access to these spaces are making them as accessible for those who are on the front lines, for those who are, you know, part of marginalized communities. So a huge part of the work that I do is around that. And also I talk a lot about environmental health, which is to me an amalgamation of understanding how our mental health is connected to our physical health, which is connected to planetary health. Uh, and trying to understand that it is a complex whole that often we try to pry apart, but it's, it, I think it does a disservice to understanding how this climate crisis is affecting us in those ways. Such important topics, and so, and it's and it's that the idea of bringing people together is how we're going to actually get get this fight under our under our mitts, isn't it? We we need to bring everyone yeah. together and in, into this fight. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the conversation um, that my friends Joe Becker and Michaela Loach had on their own podcast called The Yikes Podcast. And they did this whole episode called uh, Too Radical, um, you know, Not Radical Enough. And I think that that in itself allows us to understand that we can hold space for multiple theories of change. And I think far too often in the climate space where we have a theory of change that we believe in very strongly, and I certainly do. Uh, but I also think that part of the nuance of, of being in this complex, mind-boggling world is understanding that 
we need everybody and everyone has to find a way that they can contribute to tackling this crisis. I always say to people that the word nuance and the practice of being nuance is what keeps me sane in this practice because of the fact that it is so complicated and we always feel like we're hypocrites and we're not perfect enough. And it actually led me and a few of my friends to founding a space called the Bad Activist Collective, which is all about dismantling perfectionism within movements because it actually holds us back um, and makes us just feel terrible, (laughs) which is not what we want when we want to take charge and take action. I think this is a really big one. I think people are very fearful of coming into and entering the fight because they don't believe that their skill set is suited to it. But essentially, we do need mm. every single person and all of their skills and everybody has a skill, whether it's just getting in touch with your local government and saying, we want green. Yeah. That's, that's still a voice. and you, Everybody needs to use their voice at the moment. hundred percent. And, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot when I meet new people or when I meet, I meet people who know that I'm in the climate space is they'll always try and justify how they're doing their part, how they're being green. And I, and I often think that's that's really admirable and, and can be really empowering. But at the end of the day, we want a system change here. And, and I don't want people to have to beat themselves up for not being perfect in a system that doesn't allow them to be. Um, you know, for instance, my sort of my in-laws, so to speak, they, they always say, oh, well, you know, well, we're having a vegan meal tonight. And I'm like, that's great. And by all means, I'm a huge environmental and animal rights advocate but if I'm really thinking about the climate crisis it's so much deeper than just a few people changing these habits and don't get me wrong I think everyone can make a difference but at this point in the stage that we're at with the climate crisis I want people to not berate themselves over things that they can't do perfectly I just want everyone to get stuck in get organizing and contribute in ways that they can basically every little helps (laughs) I want to know not sponsored by Tesco (laughs) (laughs) really not can you tell me a bit about the past few really recent campaigns you've been working on yeah I mean this was very spur of the moment but I was invited to TED Countdown which is a climate conference uh, and it was based in Edinburgh and you know it was run by the TED folks the people who do all those really awesome talks and you know I wasn't initially invited but I thought to myself this is taking place in the UK a couple of weeks before COP26 I want to go because I I really just want to listen to what people have to say so I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until I managed to get a space and you know, upon kind of doing my research, I realized that Shell's CEO, Ben Van Buren, was due to have a keynote spot on, on the main stage, which to me was utterly mind-boggling because mm-hmm. it's a climate conference. And, you know, we've seen the stuff that Shell has done, or those of us in the climate space know that they say the same stuff over and over again. And a lot of it is greenwashing. And for those who don't know what greenwashing is, it's basically when a company, a business or an organization makes it seem like this sustainable thing that they're doing is really great for the planet, but actually it's just covering up a lot of the polluting behaviors that they continue with so one classic example in in the uh, instance of a fossil fuel company um you know like shell they can be wax lyrical about how many you know new uh wind farms they're opening up but 
continue to extract more and more oil by the hour so that there's this guise that they're actually being more sustainable. But if you're not reducing the amount of fossil fuels that you're extracting, it's not very sustainable at all. And this is exactly what Ben Van Buren did when he was on stage. And, you know, a few other activists were horrified by this because, to put it lightly, Shell has committed crimes against humanity. Um, they've been culpable in murdering uh, Nigerian activists who were trying to stop some of Shell's endeavors. They've also paid people to cover up the science and they've bribed politicians who have their vested interests in mind. And they have a very long history rooted in colonization and exploitation specifically, of course, in the global South. So I didn't want any of this. Many other youth activists didn't want this. Uh, and we found ourselves in rooms with people who were from a different generation to us justifying why this was okay and that to me was quite jarring you know that, that it's young people in these spaces who are demanding accountability time and time and time again and it you really take the weight of the world on your shoulders so what we ended up doing was we staged a protest inside and part of that protest involved getting a local Scottish organizer from Stock Cambo on stage and Cambo is one of the oil fields that Shell is trying to open in conjunction with a company called Sicker Point Energy. And so Lauren McDonald, the brilliant activist uh, from Glasgow, she was supposed to do a question and answer session with him and instead she just went for it. She said her piece, she said a speech, she called him out in front of everyone while this was being live broadcast and us as protesters went to the front and then we did a march out and protested outside the hall, which, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, well, what does that lead to? I think obviously awareness is only one part of the puzzle, but we found out the day after we had done that protest, Shell stock prices actually fell, not only um, as a whole, but also for their Moss Moran plant, which is one of their infamous uh, polluting plants near Fife. So, you know, I think it, it goes to show that direct action does work. And I would hazard a guess that Ted Countdown, fingers crossed, will never invite another polluter on stage to take up space when there was such a huge lacking of black, indigenous and people of color voices on that stage. Yeah, it's almost like how dare he have a, have, have the pedestal or have the, have the space mm -hmm. on the stage when he's the one that's actually causing so much harm. Yeah. That, that said, I have never been so moved by a protest, I think. Just mm. seeing it on stage and seeing the, the bravity of Lauren and what you all did yeah. and actually witnessing it live on TV was a new form of protest that I've never seen before. And I wonder if yeah. that kind of calling people out it live in front of thousands of people can be done in a, in a safe way that will then, you know, yeah. make this chain reaction and, and have this even bigger, bigger change. For sure. I mean, one of the things that we considered very, very deeply, and also it's worth bearing in mind that we organized this in such a short amount of time. And when I say this, I literally mean in a few hours mm. um, because the conference wasn't actually that long. A lot of people said, why wasn't there a, uh, a black 
uh, activists on stage calling him out. And I think that there's so much nuance involved. We did actually push for a person of color to be up on stage with Lauren, but Ted denied those, uh, those asks. And then there's the question of safety. You know, I think Lauren did a very brave thing putting mm-hmm. herself out there because, mm-hmm. you know, Chell has been known to murder people. And this is something that we couldn't take lightly. And I would be so horrified if a person of color, a marginalized individual was up on stage and received torrents of abuse and, mm-hmm. you know, threats of any kind. And that was something that we thought long and hard about. Uh, and so it also made sense geographically with Stop Cambo campaign being Scottish based. We were in Scotland. This is a real tangible way to actually make a difference. And the Stop Cambo movement to stop this new um, oil field plant has gained so much traction because of this. We genuinely have a chance to stop this from being developed. Um, you know, so I, I really, really, I, I mean, maybe this is, this is the time where I'm going to allow myself to be an optimist, but I really think we have a chance to stop this. Right. And, and, and so keeping with this optimism, <laughs> sticking with this optimism and going straight into this, the, you know, the biggest climate conference, they say of the decade, which puts a lot of pressure on it. And I think that we mm. need to keep saying that forever, this will be an important thing in our lives. Anyway, we're in the midst of it now. Tell me if you're feeling positive, what to look out for, what you're excited about, what you're, mm. how you're feeling. So COP in and of itself is a space where a lot of discussions are being had and a lot of quote unquote decisions are being made. And I, I will say that, you know, historically COPs for many climate activists have not been successful in the conventional sense of making sure that we are staying under 1.5 degrees of warming. That needs to be said. However, I will say that from a very personal perspective, this is the first time that my delegation, Unite for Climate Action, has been able to successfully fund and accredit nearly all of the activists to attend COP26. But now this team of incredible Latin American and Caribbean and European activists are here at COP and be sure to look out for our side event. Uh, Any talks that are happening from members of our delegation, just look for Unite for Climate Action, basically. So that's what I'm really, really happy about. It seems like this is the time for youth to be heard, Indigenous peoples to be heard, all of the kind of marginalised people that haven't had a voice in the past in these events are now being hopefully put on platforms and that's what we're Mm. trying to do and that's what you're trying to do and and let's keep fighting that fight. To the best of our ability, that's always something I try to, to think about. What is the context? Who's here? Who isn't here? Mm-hmm. What can we do to make sure that we're continuing this fight and making sure that every single time those who are most marginalized don't get left behind? Because that's essentially what climate justice is about. You know, we need to make sure that we're centering marginalized people. Uh, and unfortunately, with the pandemic and with the inaccessibility of traveling to somewhere like COP, the expenses, we are going to have people who are left behind or left out of this conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's about making sure that those of us who are here, are really, really pushing for accountability. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me is, I think, a huge part of the work that I do is being that niggling, annoying voice <laughs> that reminds you- world leaders to be accountable. 
And yet from the outside, you are the inspiring and, and progressive <laughs> voice. And on that note, we're going to say goodbye, but you will hear a lot of Tori throughout the show. And um, as always, such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Take care, everyone. Take care. My name is Fahana Yamin. I'm working um, here at the COP on making sure that climate justice is at the centre of all that we do. I work uh, closely with the Climate Vulnerable Forum. I also work very closely with a number of arts organisations and I'm here supporting the Minga delegation uh, achieve um, their vision of a harmonious and just world. Welcome event on the 30th of October marked the ceremonial arrival of the Minga delegation in Glasgow. They had the event um, with uh, Nicola Sturgeon in her capacity as host of COP26. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon is not, as First Minister, in charge of the COP presidency, which is uh, run by the UK, but she is the host and it is in her capacity as host uh, and also as the keeper of the land. It was in Tramway, her constituency and her area of Glasgow that they are basing their activities over the next two weeks and the Mingo delegation requested her to help them build bridges, to have their voice heard, to have their demands for justice be included in the COP negotiations and she very kindly offered to listen and to help um, the Mingo with all that they stand for and represent which is a, a healing and a, a completion of a set of uh, uh, overturning of wrongs, historic um, and systemic that have resulted in uh, indigenous peoples and Mother Earth being uh, suffering from a lot of damage. So they're here to repair that harm, to repair that healing, to bring people together. The ceremony was um, uh, involved a symbolic mingling of the waters, the sacred waters which the Mingo delegation brought with them from Patagonia, from the most sacred mountains, mingling with the waters of the Clyde and uh, involved soil that was brought from um, Patagonia, again, uh, symbolically being mixed with the soil of Scotland. And each of the uh, two sides, uh, the Scottish and the Minga, then exchanged gifts of that soil and a, a seed which will be planted here to represent the seed of hope that will hopefully mark uh, climate justice being achieved at COP26. Elena Walinga. I am 19 and I come from an indigenous community called Sarayaku in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Uh, my community has been uh, doing protecting our territory for uh, generations and um, our, our most recent um, 
fights have been against the oil industry. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I was really um, touched by the ceremony that just happened. Can you tell me a little bit about why the ceremony happened and, and the demands that you put towards Nicola in the ceremony? Uh, yes, yeah, so the demands are, were written um, at last COP. Uh, by, they were written by Minga Indígena, which is uh, an alternative COP, I'd say, uh, for indigenous people, made by indigenous people, because we do not, um, we're not able to, to be in the negotiating spaces. Um, and, well, the, there are nine demands, but the most important thing about the entire document, the entire um, Minga Indígena message is that indigenous people have the right uh, to be informed and consulted um, in a fair way before extractivism comes to our territory. And that really translates to us having uh, the right to decide every single um to, to be able to participate in every, every single that decision that concerns indigenous people. We really need to, to make sure that our message is heard. Uh, and and it is it takes a lot of sacrifices to get people here and to get people flying across the world to get here. Um, but it is necessary. Um, and so we have indigenous leaders from all over the world, indigenous leaders that are really needed back home and that are um, great leaders of their people, but they have to come to spaces like this because if they don't, no one will... Um, know what is going on in our do you think that the ceremony with nicola will make a difference do you think that she will take this message across tables of negotiation and that people listen well we have to wait and see if she does yeah. um i feel like now she really committed to doing so yeah so i really hope she she keeps with um to to her word on the third we will have the opening ceremony of the indigenous leaders of flaminga indigena we will start walking and with, uh, with, with horses to the river and we will go to the presidency of the COP to, to say hello, to bring their waters and then we will come to the hidden gardens to light the fire. This fire will be holding all the energy of the whole 12 days. After that we will go to another place to do um, some drums and music from different territories of indigenous people so everyone is invited to that too so try to join us and, and to follow because it's it's gonna be very interesting artistic celebration of life with love Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Wow, wow, wow. Hello, I'm joined with Sam Lee, the fabulous and infamous folk singer. Um, but mainly we're talking here today because you're a, a climate activist and a, a conservationist and you've been doing some ridiculously wonderful things for humankind so thank you for being part of the fight and doing what you do oh well, i bloody love a good fight a <laughs> <laughs> sort of a love fight it's a love fight that's what this is it's funny because yours is a, a kind of activism that um is actually surrounded by love 
um, but it's love of people, love of land, love of nature. Um, but I want to know how you center and how you keep your anger at bay. Oh, um, God, it's such a good question. I'm not by nature a very angry person. Um, the rest of my family are really good at that. And I sort of went into the kind of uh, let it wash over me. I don't, I don't, I'm not a rageful human. Um, I, but what I do is smother with love. When I encounter those moments where I am filled with that fire, um, I sometimes find that the most powerful response is, well, song often and, and, you know, love just, you know, showing people that they are loved. It's so, it sounds very banal saying it. And it's all about the moment and the, the kind of tactileness of how one responds. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do find it a few times where my, my, uh, my sort of guttural, uh, uh, yeah, a sort of response to conflict does um, fill me up. And I have to really, yeah, pull back and actually go, what's a, what's a, what's a better way of turning people's opinions around? And I'm always of the inclination that um, to, to win over the opposition, you throw a better party. Um, <laughs> and that mantra has stayed with me. And, that, that, and that, that, so the implication of that is that when you ever, re, when you ever encounter a circumstance where people are doing things in a way that feels, yeah, harmful of the of the planet um yeah just revealing the kind of joyfulness of the of the alternative is is my antidote awake awake sweet england sweet england now awake unto the land obediently and let us all partake for our future now is calling all in the sky so clear so resound resound sweet england for our history's always and that brings us on to the connection with nature doesn't it and then you've been doing a lot of work with um birds and singing with birds and bringing people in to sing with birds and connecting our love of nature with ourselves and that interconnectedness that we're all kind of losing mm. track of in this in this world that is focused on individualism and and capitalism and profit so do you want to tell us a bit about your 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 um connections with nature yeah i'd love to so I mean, for me, that this whole climate crisis is about a disconnection with the natural world and a loss of sense of responsibility, of accountability, and um, and a sort of yeah, the way that the natural world and all the species that we have we depend upon have become so removed from our awareness, and that is the great danger because when we are not when we're not paying attention that's when these things are stolen away from us or slip away and so for me that the work I do with a few things the sing with nightingales is my is my sort of most uh, sort of significant project but also the pilgrimages 
um, the Turtle Dove Pilgrimage, is about finding poetic, musical um, ways of of connecting people with a species and an environment, a landscape in which they are dependent and generally very rare species. And the nightingales is an event that happens just for a short six weeks in the spring when the night the males have returned and sing their infamous courtship song. And I create I create a kind of a ceremony. It's not named that and I and there's no like chanting ritual, but a, an opportunity for people to go into the springtime woods and be kind of lowered into that environment it, through music through song through food through storytelling and then silent walking to to the birds that creates a kind of trance inducing state when we get to the kind of point with the bird at about 11 o'clock that is is very heart opening and introducing within that the stories of extinction that's happening to the bird in our environment and their sort of being the barometer of our state of the world I think people come out very reformed um, and that's what I try and do with all the work I do is is um, reveal the hidden fragility and the beauty that um, is out there in the world locally ancestrally that is so vulnerable and what we have to lose I'm I'm already in a in a kind of more calm state than when getting on to the the interview. It sounds wonderful um, and deeply important. But how do we? I think it's a bigger question and it's probably unanswerable. But it's this collective state, this state that you're offering to these like few people that are lucky enough to 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 go on this almost um, spiritual journey with you and the, mm. and nature. We need this to be um, upscaled by an extreme degree so that everybody on the planet is on this page. So this is a really good question for legacy and moving forward, but I really would love to know how to expand this. Oh, this is the the million dollar question. How do you take the small and the nuanced and magnify that to millions? And there is no... There is no sh- quick answer. You know, I, I, I love a lot of the work I do by nature of it, even though I'm a egotistical, attention-seeking artist like everyone else, I adore the intimate. And, you know, we're working with slow form. Nature is by nature, long form, slow form, slow art. Um, and it's very hard to uh, extract the magic of that and put it into, you know, a a TikTok moment that's going to change people's lives. So for me, the the first most important thing is to get people out there. I think music is a very powerful tool and there's many things to this. You know, for me, it's the project is as much about bringing musicians. So they have experiences that are, uh, you know, uh, are transforming. Um, and I, that happens every year. The musicians that come into the Nighty Girls come back saying this is the greatest musical experience I've ever had in my whole life. And I'm thinking about my instrument in a completely new way now. And that's a regular thing every night. But then how do they take that and embed that emotion and that power and that inspiration and communicate that in their art? Because that's for me the, where the, the, 
the amplification is a kind of pyramid scheme, I guess, of of of, of revelation. Um, you, you get one person, and then through their music, you catch all of their followers, and then through them sharing it, it's a whole yeah domino effect. And, and that's what's happening with Music Declares Emergency, which is the organisation I'm super proud to be part of and founding member. And you know, we've had in the two short years we've been running enormous success of getting artists to speak up and out about uh, the climate and ecological emergency and start to uh, normalize that within their communications, within their messaging and, and speaking out. And I think that's what's beginning to happen. It is, for me, it is also about the process of normalizing, that we start, enough people speak out about what the issue is and what's going on enough artists are doing that that their audiences are going to follow suit and likewise if enough artists are also highlighting what's broken in society then we're going to start to go you know actually why do we do it like this just because it's cheaper and easier is this really the right way so bringing a sense of kind of moral moral duty and accountability to and the music industry is really shifting so fast right now it's really inspiring and you know music rules right you know how many social media followers does the music industry have collectively and people that are you know yeah totally um well also just wanted to do a huge thanks and congrats for being the very first artist committing a a percentage of your touring income to earth percent we are so (laughs) chuffed to have you on board and wonderful soul um yeah it's really you've amazing. made about you've made about 50 quid out of it i know but <laughs> every little helps <laughs> every little help but um, what i have loved and it's more th- it's so much more than the money because you know there is not much money in touring at the moment but what really helped what for me is the it's like the exciting thing is that every night at the gig i tell the audience that and for them to go wow there's a way of of like within the mu- music of giving back to to charity that isn't that is kind of integrated I get a lot of I get always get an applause for it I yeah. always get people coming up asking musicians asking I want to do this and I think it's that kind of it's that message sharing and it's yeah I for me that's why I'm so pleased to be doing it we're so pleased to have you it's like creating a climate family within the music biz who all care and all coming together to show the planet they care it's just yeah I like the mechanism. It, yeah, <laughs> kind of vision is that, that before long, it, it's like standard. Every artist has Earth Percent built in. It's like it's like your manager, your agents, Earth Percent. They're all getting their cut, sort of thing. And that that's just like, and nobody's like, oh, I'm working with Earth Percent. It's like, of course you are. Yeah. We all are. Um, and that so that's what will happen next. And then after that, there's a whole realm of other possibility of how artists have kind of like that's their sign up you know that that's their being held to account by signing up to you guys and yeah and then from there on so many other things that can happen but anyway so join us right yeah. <laughs> um and then the final one i want to ask you about is the big one that we're at at the moment is cop so um yeah do you think that we're on track in the crisis do you think COP is going to make it and what are you up to at COP? All in a real nutshell because we have not much time left, but um, what is COP? Well, what are you up to? <laughs> well, my role in COP is really kind of like a, 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 a network, a connector. I'm hosting the COP26.tv, uh, the music 
show on that channel, which is uh, all through COP. I'm doing lots of hosting and working with the indigenous delegation and doing some listening sessions and lots of other things, reportage, basically. Um, I'm also hosting my own podcast, So Hot Right Now. I'm a co-presenter for that. Um, so I've got loads of different things that I'm doing. But I think actually the arts is really coming through at the moment as being massively powerful in this in this one. Um, I had, I'm just going to say, I had a very interesting chat a couple of days ago with somebody very interesting who's the Senator John Kerry, um, ex-Secretary wow. of State in the US. And we had about half an hour together. I sang him a song and he told me a little bit about what the Americans are bringing and some of the, uh, the deals that are being made. And it was super interesting, actually, uh, but seeing some of the really, obviously he's only going to speak about the positive stuff, but he feels very much like some major things are going to happen at COP. So fingers I'd crossed. love, love, love that to happen. And I'd love, love, love to check back in with you after COP to see if Mr. Kerry kept his promises. <laughs> Indeed. It's yeah. just one, it takes one, as you say, with the artist, it takes one person to do the right thing and then the, the domino effect. So yeah, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, thank you, Sophie. <laughs> and watch watch Pop TV. Sam will be fab on it. See you soon. All right, my love. Bye. Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. Happy da ba ba be da ba bo. Yes, it's all looking good. Sound check. I'll just give a little extra volume. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. You have a really interesting approach to recording music, asking musicians to play instruments they're unfamiliar with. Guitarists play drums, singers play saxophones. I wonder whether you have any ideas about how to challenge fixed ideas and encourage creative thinking about tackling climate change. Yes, thank you. That's a good question. So I'll start by saying that my the frame within which I'm working is that we can regard climate change as an opportunity. We're used to regarding it as an emergency, and it is an emergency. But at the same time, it's created the biggest social move movement in human history. There are more people now engaged with this than have ever been engaged with any question in the history of humanity. So if you think of the amount of intelligence that is now being poured into this problem, Intelligence of all kinds, social intelligence, personal intelligence, technical intelligence, scientific intelligence, artistic intelligence, suddenly all focused on this one issue. I think that is really a, a great case for optimism. So my feeling is that to solve the problem of climate change or to get the best possible future that we can, we have to change so many things in our society. We have to change economic structures and gender structures and how we deal with people from other parts of the world. We have to rethink not only all of our relationships with each other, but with the world, the planet as well. And if you start looking at that, you think, well, isn't that 
actually what we wanted to do anyway. Aren't these all the changes that we've known we needed for a very long time? For at least the last hundred years, people have been talking about, you know, colonialism has to end and racial, sexual and so on, discrimination has to end. All of those things have to end anyway, but now we've got an absolutely cast iron reason for doing them and we can't ignore it anymore. So, so I think although we are facing a serious problem, we are also facing what could be a lot of brilliant solutions. So that's the beginning of my frame of thinking, let's grasp this as a cause for optimism of some kind. Um, the, the second thing I'd say is that we have to move human consciousness in general into the next stage of its, its life. Um, there's a, there's a writer called, or a thinker, or an environmentalist, I don't know what we'd call him, called John Alexander, who's written a very interesting book recently. It's not out yet, but I'm reading it at the moment. And what he's talking about is a transition in human consciousness from, you know, the old notion of the the human being as the subject the subject of the monarch or the leader or the chief or the sheikh or whoever, to what happened in the 20th century is the subject became the consumer. And that seemed like a kind of liberation. Suddenly you had the freedom to buy whatever you wanted, if you had the money. Um, and of course, the whole emphasis of 20th century culture and uh, um, industrial production has been towards satisfying that consumer creating that spiral of need and demand and production that um, that typifies consumerism. The next stage, according to John Alexander, is citizenship. That we become equal citizens engaged in what we're doing and engaged in the world. And that, again, is a, such a beautiful idea. And I see it beginning. I see it happening with these millions of people now involved in the climate change argument. These are people who have stopped being consumers and now want to be citizens. Great. That's amazing. This links to the concept of decentralisation and giving communities a voice and giving the individual a chance to make their own future. The European Commission have actually got a, a policy on that out. Within their Renewable Energy Directive, it's an article called Renewable Energy Communities that basically provides an enabling framework to put renewable energy communities on equal footing with other market players and to promote and facilitate their development. And they're looking at making new policies for nearly zero energy districts. So having the district and the, the community be de the decider of how they have their energy and how they move their energy and how they develop their energy. That's so good. I'm so pleased to hear that. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah progressive it's 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 great to have the bottom up grassroots levels of people making change but then to see the change being made from the top level mm -hmm. and for it to fi filter down is really quite impressive and i think if we look at the world and we see a system where top down works with bottom up we can start to really make fundamental yeah. change yeah yep that's that's what it'll have to be and 
that's a wrap thanks for tuning in and don't forget we're with you daily over cop i want to say a huge thanks to our partners Clybrook radio earth percent and julia's bicycle our speakers and count content today sally milhook mingas indigena fahana yaman tori Choi, brian nino sam lee and for the music hot chip cosmo sheldrake and the wonderful sam lee again I also want to thank our amazing team, Claudia, Andrew, Isla, Matt, Neelam, Claire, and finally, our sponsors, Tenants. Thank you again for listening, and see you tomorrow. Thank you.